0: Hey, welcome back to bonus episode number 10, the Clarity Podcast. We're gonna sit down today with uh, our friend Dick Foth and have a candid, transparent conversation with our new friend Admiral Vern Clark, who was head of the head of the Navy and led billions and billions of dollars in, in that organization while he was during 9-11 and also during the attack of USS Cole. This is a masterclass in leadership, a masterclass in life. Um in mission on self-evaluation he's going to talk about five essential things that he addressed and the values what he wanted to be known for um, he talked about how he uses his time and the, the, the matrix he runs that through and the people we surround ourselves with so you're going to want to take notes um, and it, and he's agreed to come back and so um, i'm excited about that to sit down with him because i got through about two of our questions His is just wealth and depth and wisdom. And uh, so we're th- so thankful for both him um, and uh, Dick Foth for sitting down with us on the Clarity Podcast today for this transparent conversation in the time of crisis and challenge of COVID. So here we go. Well, so it's great to be here today uh, with two friends uh, on the Clarity Podcast. It was a special episode, bonus episode, as we've been doing these in the, during the time of COVID and the COVID challenge. And um, we're honored to have our friend Dick Foth back with us. And Dick, we have a special guest with us today. Would you go ahead and interview, uh, introduce your friend um, to the audience?
1: You bet. Our friend today is Admiral Vern Clark. And... Um I'll start a little earlier than when he became Admiral. In 1966, Ruth and I drove from California to Urbana, Illinois, University of Illinois, to do a church plant. We were 24 years old. The superintendent for the assemblies at that point in, in our denominational structure was a fellow named E.M. Clark, who turned out to be a very wise man. And He had a mantra, and the mantra for young guys coming in was, come share your dreams and let us help you fulfill them. Well, that turned out, I, I went to talk to him and he said, I said, you're only going to stay two years and then we're going to go as missionaries. And his comment was, you know, my experience as a guy can't do much in less than five years, Dick, but whatever God's telling you, you do that. Well, 12 <laughs> years later, <laughs> we, we left, went to California, came back and in the mid 90s, 30 years after that, we were in DC working with people in places of leadership behind the scenes. And I got a call from E.M. Clark. And he said, uh, My boy, Vern, who's in the Navy, is at the Pentagon again. He's been there before. And um, he's a three star admiral. And he is uh, the director for operations for the Joint Chiefs. Joint Chiefs, in a nutshell, I think this is correct, pretty close at least, have about 1,600 personnel, uh, most military, some civilian. And they have various categories. They have policy and, you know, materiel and operations. Is the fulcrum? It's the catalyst for everything uh, military for the United States that happens around the world. And Vern was at that spot in that office with no windows in the belly of the Pentagon. And he said, "Would you go see Vern?" I went to see Vern, and the th- there's a longer story, but just to say that we connected, became friends, started hanging out. That's my Vern. That's my version. That's not what the military would call it. And um, later on, Vern became. Um, Became commander in chief of the Atlantic Fleet, which is all Navy personnel from the in operations from the from the Mississippi River to the coast of Africa and from the North Pole to the South Pole. Not long after that, he was named Chief of Naval Operations, which is running the entire United States Navy. At that time, eight hundred thousand personnel, including uh civilians, hundred and twenty, I don't know if I have this right, hundred and twenty billion dollar budget. Is that right, Byrne? Is that number right? Per year. Yeah, that's- What's that? Pretty close. <laughs> close enough. Well, a billionaire, billionaire, as they say, and uh, <laughs> and he he held that responsibility as the second longest serving chief of naval operations in the history of the United States Navy. The cool thing about Vern is that he is the son of an Assemblies of God pastor, like I am. We're both PKs, and uh, that experience with Vern introduced me to a whole different world at a whole different level. And here's a kid who graduated from this place called Evangel College, who ends up running the Navy. I think that's just the coolest thing in the world. So there you are, Vern. That's my story, I'm sticking to it, and we can go from there. Uh, You got it just right. Well, shoot. Well, given that, uh, and I'm gonna interrupt along the way and ask other questions, but Aaron and I are gonna have this conversation with you. Let me start by just saying, First of all, we're deeply honored to have you in this time. I know Aaron is, and I, I'm excited to be a part. 30,000 foot view with all kinds of things going on. This is a crisis of a proportion we've not seen probably at least since World War II uh, in its range and perhaps 100 years, World War I and the flu epidemic. but. Leadership in time of crisis is a hot topic today, but just give us, first of all, you were at the heart of 9-11 when it happened. Maybe you could give us a couple of moments on that, but then step back and say, okay, when crisis hits, how do leaders respond in an effective way? Leaders respond in all kinds of ways. How do they respond in an effective way? You're up. Okay, real good, Dick.
2: Well, it's a privilege to be with you and Aaron today, and uh, hope we have a nice discussion that's worthwhile uh, for folks. So I like the question. It's a wonderful place to start because fundamentally, uh, and I would just interject that I spent a lot of, you know, I spent 37 years in the Navy, and that was all leadership, starting at lower-level leadership, going to high-level, executive-level leadership. And I've been blessed over the course of time since I retired and spent a lot of time uh, talking leadership and, and teaching leadership and from everything from the classroom to corporate structures. And, and it's so I, I love to talk about it. Um, and in the middle of that, too, I would just say, Dick, and I don't think you know this, I'm in the middle of uh, editing my oral history for the U.S. Naval Institute. And so I, oh. a lot of Stories are coming back, and I've, I've had time to uh, revisit some of them. Uh, the most important thing in crisis is, and it depends on where you are in the organization. So let's say that I, I'm in, we're in crisis, and I'm operating, and I'm uh, you. Know, the carrier's been in the news, and I'm on the carrier working as a division officer, of department on the carrier. There's a certain level of uh, responsibility and things that you do at that level. And I call that the more operational level. And, and, I, and we differentiate that uh, when we talk about leadership, strategic uh, leadership and tactical leadership is they're here and now. And one of the things that's said uh, about leaders is you got to be really careful not to get hung up in the tyranny of the urchin. Well, this is especially complicated when you're in crisis, because it seems like everything is urgent. And the fact is, is that uh, the leadership books tell you, you know, don't get hung up with the tyranny of the urgent because, you know, it'll derail you and you won't get this big stuff done. Well, the counterpart to that is you'd really better take care of the things that are really urgent or that long term thing isn't going to matter you're going to fail in the short term. And, you know, that's, that's, that can be lethal. Um, and so I think the very first thing that happens and let's just talk nine eleven as a backdrop. Okay, Dick. Yeah. Um, if we do that, uh, I would just say that, uh, you know, within 10 or 15 seconds when the plane hit the Pentagon, they hit my spaces and I'll try to not make this a long story, but f- fundamentally that building is an amazing building. Um, and just think about four uh, or four feet of uh, solid concrete um, and you go into the building but uh, it's about 40 or 50 feet across and then you go out that building because that's the first ring on the building and when you said that when i was the director of operations i was in the bowels of the pentagon with no windows that was on purpose of course um, and uh, so that we were in a place where we had a lot of protection, and so but this plane went through the outer ring then and then that's the E ring, a B C, D, and E, then it went through the gear gap between the D and the E, and it went into D again about three or four feet of concrete, went through that, and then through the and out that one and through the air gap again and into the C ring, and that's where my command center was. Um, and so immediately we didn't know, um, the first thing that I said was get a hold of the command center. The, the staff came running in in seconds and said, "Admiral, we got to get you out. of here. Um, and that's understandable because the smoke was pouring in and, uh, you, you're not going to hang around. And
1: Vern, Vern, you were, you were in the E ring, but around yes. the corner, around the corner I, from where the plane is.
2: That's correct. And so the plane went in between their 10 spokes. The plane went in between spoke four and five, and my office was right at the end of spoke six. So it was relatively close. Um, And uh, we used the term, I think we said 89% of our spaces were destroyed. And they hit my command center and killed 42 of my people. Um, So in the moment, I didn't know that. In the moment, the staff said, hey, we got to get out here. And we started bundling up and getting ready to go, and we stopped. And this is where leaders, uh, you know, impact what's gonna happen from here on. Okay, before we leave here, we don't know if we'll be back or not. Get anything that we absolutely have to have before we leave and make sure we leave things tidy enough so that we don't give anything away if the wrong people get in here and this place survives. Um, So the the key is, in the moment, clarity is really important. Uh, it doesn't have to be complex, and there's no time for a 30-minute speech. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the first thing's first. So um, so then I would just say that then we're literally in the passageway, and the car's waiting at the, uh, at the entrance, and I said, before we go out, we've got to go to the National Military Command Center. And why did I know to do that? I knew that because God had prepared me for moments like this. I had been the director for operations who owned the National Military Command Center. And there was somebody in that spot that would have been me a few years earlier. And I wanted to, first of all, I had a couple of important things to tell the person that had that job. Number one, I have no command center here in the Pentagon. And I'm going to this particular location and I will contact you as soon as I get there on secure communication so that we can do what we need to do. So clarity in the moment is critical. Um, now I would just say that that day was a lost day as we're, and I'm climbing in the car and the director of the Navy staff, I see her. She was the senior woman in the United States Navy, a three-star Admiral. And I said, Pat, find your task, is this, find our people. Um, Why did I know that? I had learned through another crisis that had occurred, three months after I took over as the chief of the Navy, when the USS Cole was attacked in Yemen. And at the time, we couldn't communicate even with that ship. And so we had a significant period of time several days before uh, we could do so uh, with clarity because communications were done by shuttle, you know, people were shuttling messages to the shore and and communications were through the embassy. I mean, they lost all communication, which is, we're not used to that. We don't know how to deal with that, in fact. Uh, so some, you know, you had to figure out in a hurry how to deal with that. Well, uh, my lesson out of that And here's one of the things that leaders always do from the little, when you're low on the totem pole to you're at the top of the totem pole, leaders are constantly learning the lessons that life brings them from the experiences that come that way. Dick, you remember me talking about Admiral Harry Train, who was one of my mentors when I was a lieutenant. And Admiral Train told me always, Vern, remember, we're all functions of our perspective. And not the, and when when you move to the crisis point, you are going to function the way your perspective has led you and trained you to perform. That's what happens for leaders. So we uh, we then reach to this reservoir of knowledge and experience, and uh, we start in. Do we have time, Dick, for me to tell them the, my time with the, my direct reports the next morning?
1: Sure. And, and I just want to reiterate just what you said. You're saying that how you act in the moment of crisis is the cumulative, cumulative effect of all those experiences you have had and worked through to that point. That's just that, your reflex. That's exactly
2: correct. And, you know, when I talk to faith audiences, I oftentimes tell them, You know, I feel sorry for non-Christians in the marketplace. Uh, You know, how in the world do they function without a faith? Um, and And in crisis, you're responding with this product that has been developed over the years. And part of our product is that as people of faith is that we have integrity. And integrity leads to credibility. And that credibility is vital in crisis for people to step forward and follow. So.
1: So you're talking to your first reports. The
2: next morning, I had no place there in the Pentagon to function. The US Marine Corps gave me their big conference room, uh, which was up on the hill about four blocks away, uh, in a building called the Navy Annex. And the Marines had their headquarters up there.
1: And of course, my space- What's the first report, Vern? First report, just give us, help us with the link.
2: You know, they're mostly three and four-star admirals. But there are some civilians, because there are civilians in positions that have admiral equivalency uh, ranking. So, um, in the room where all of the direct reports, or the, for example, the vice chief, there are only five real four-stars in the Navy, And me, I'm one of them, and my vice chief of the Navy is the other one. And then there's three spread around globally uh, in spots like I had when I was the commander-in-chief of the Atlantic, commander-in-chief of the Pacific, and so forth. Uh, And so those guys, uh, they might have a deputy that – they they weren't there that day. They were doing their thing. But, I mean, the local people were my uh, uh, deputy chiefs of naval operations for – air warfare, for submarine warfare, for surface warfare, for logistics, you know, and you start going down the thing. And there were probably 15 of them in the, in the room. And um, so like we do in the military, I just started by saying, uh, uh, let's run around the room and give me an update on where you are. Remember, the night before, I had, the day before, I had asked the director of the Navy staff, find our people. I had gotten a call at 1.30 in the morning that we found who was missing. And we knew. By the, and th- that was kind of a miracle, to tell you the truth, because you, anybody could have been walking through one of those giant uh, passageways in the Pentagon that are at least 20 feet wide, right, Dick?
1: Right, uh, sure.
2: Yeah. So uh, anyway, um, they went around the room. I said nothing. I listened. Um uh, in crisis, when you give your subordinates a chance to talk, it's really good to zip your lip uh, and hear, hear them. Um, vital if you are going to empower them in the steps that follow, and they believe in you that you believe in them. Um, and then when they were all finished, I had a short, some short direction for them. And I, basically, it was less than 10 minutes. Um, and it was, okay, number one, we found our people. But here's our real calling today. I'm back to the clarity piece. Not a 30-minute speech. Clarity. We do not have a headquarters. Your calling today is by close of business, you will have contacted the major commands of the United States Navy around the world. And you have solid communications with them, even though you're probably not going to have a hard Headquarters set up yet? You will have communications with them globally, and that is your calling for today. And then uh, empowerment. And I said like this: Now, don't ask for permission. I'm giving you the authority. Don't wait. Don't call back and say, "May I?" You have authority. Tomorrow morning when we sit down, everybody's going to be connected. Now there was no threat there. There was an expectation there, but it was pretty clear. Um, and that's what we first do uh, in crisis. And we grow from there. And then we had to kill, we had 42 people killed. And I didn't know yet, we had 10 more killed in the Navy family that were in the, all the airplanes. We didn't, certainly didn't have that information. Yet. And I said, now, though, those are family members, everyone in our Navy family. And so we are going to smother these families with our love. That's what we're going to do. And we're going to try to meet their every need. But let me make one thing clear. That is not your personal responsibility. You have a bigger responsibility. There are 400,000 sailors out there. There are 190,000 civilians that work for us there. And over 200,000 Um, civilian contractors and 87,000 sailors in the United States Navy. And they expect to have a headquarters. And that's what you're getting paid to do now. But you are also getting paid to make sure you have the best people you know of to also wrap their arms around these families that have suffered this loss. And it will never be said that we didn't love them to death. Okay, that's, so some of them really didn't know what to do. And as soon as I finished, this person came up to me, this is a high-ranking person, and said, thank you so much for that. Now that, you know, I didn't think that was a lot of genius and get involved in that. Thank you so much for that, because I didn't really know where to start. Well, I didn't really know where to start and what to do, so that was not strategic. <laughs> that was here and now tyranny,
1: the urgent, or what? This was urgent. That was the guidance. Yeah. Let me let me just jump. Can I go ahead, Aaron? Here, just for sure. a moment. Just go so, right so, ahead. So, so, Vern, you know you have this huge responsibility for the most powerful navy in the history of mankind, right? Yeah. And I just heard the former chief of naval operations <laughs> talk about loving the family. In the midst of, the, I mean, that's like, that's that's jarring to one's senses if you think of military people in a particular way as sort of command and control people. But you're talking to people who are in missions smaller than that, but maybe uh, eternal—not maybe eternal in reach in a lot of ways around the world, and they're in places some of which we would call very difficult but backwater situations that are very challenging and 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 I hear you talk about smothering the family in love the people who are near you just just talk a little bit more about that and if I get tired of it I'll just interrupt you how about that
2: so I feel feel so strongly and did feel so strongly about it that Dick, you would remember that I built my whole leadership approach to the Navy on something called the top five, top five top priorities that I was going to push at the four star head of the Navy level. Right. Uh, number four on that list was quality of service and quality of, in the Navy, we always talked about quality of life. And that was, you know, you have a nice house to live in and there's plumbing working and, you know, that's somebody mowing the lawn, right? You know, this took me. I thought that was pretty pedestrian to tell you the truth. But that's what we talked about. And usually it was the source of somebody grumbling about, you know, something. And I decided I had to change that language. And I said, I, I as I went around and looked at the Navy, and by the way, your comment about Evangel College, I mean, yes. it's so important because people have to understand that I did not covet this, the job they gave me. In fact, I thought there was zero chance I would ever uh, be an admiral, let alone in a one-star, a two-star, a three-star, and a four-star. Uh, and when I was a four-star and went to the interview, I've told you this before, but not a lot, ever, a lot of people. I knew they weren't going to pick an evangelical college kid, and only one person in history, non Naval Academy, had ever been the head of the Navy, and that hadn't gone very well. And so I had a strategy for this hour or so. I guess the interview was supposed to be 30 to 45 minutes. I had a strategy for that interview, and my strategy was to make sure the Secretary of Defense knew what questions to ask the other candidates because it wasn't gonna be me. And I, there were many things about the Navy I thought really needed to be uh, made better. Um, and so I, want, I said, uh, you know, when I walk around and look at the Navy we have today, we are not investing the right kind of resources to make sure that people also have quality of work. And this, see, this started this discussion about the value of people the importance of people and why we had to invest in them. And so it was a natural extension for me to talk about loving them because this is, I'd already been talking to them about it with then making uh, retention and quality of uh, service for the people who decided to raise their right hand and take the oath. Um, I had made that my number one priority that we were going to invest in people. And so it was, and some of those discussions were pretty emotional because I had this view that we had not acted. We, we used the words that people were number one, but we didn't live it in any way. And um, so this was a, this opportunity. What I, I'm glad you um, brought this up because what leaders have to do is they have to constantly be sowing the seeds. Who are we? What do we believe in? I had been sowing the seeds, the importance of the human element in the ability to uh, build and maintain the greatest Navy that existed on the face of the earth. So this was a natural consequence of that and reinforcement of that set of principles.
1: Great.
0: Admiral Clark, as you, Is leading in this time, many of the leaders around the world, um, missionaries, workers, are faced with unprecedented challenges in this midst of this crisis. And it's sometimes it's easier to run from the problems and challenges rather than embrace them and, and and engage with them. What guided you so that you engage problems, engage challenges, so that you were able to learn? You talked about learning and growing through crisis. How did, you, how did you engage those challenges rather than running from them, and how did you learn in the process?
2: Well, <clears throat> I really do believe that my faith had an awful lot to do with that in my instruction, you know. Uh, I, when I was a teenager when Dad was a district superintendent of the state of Illinois, so uh, I, I got to see him. You know, when you're eight years old, you wouldn't notice it, right? Uh, but when you're thirteen and fourteen and fifteen, every teenager I know that's that age is looking at adults, going, you know, what in the world is wrong with these people? <laughs> well, you know, it wasn't like that in my house. Uh, when I watched my dad up close and personal, I was pretty impressed. Uh, he had he had incredible moral courage, um, and so along with the fact that mom and dad raised me to believe in the calling of every believer, this was a major thing of having uh, the courage to take stuff on. Now, <clears throat> when they write the book about me when I'm dead and gone or whatever, you know, it will be said that I didn't shy away from problems. Uh, in fact, when I said but a little minute, a minute ago, I never thought I'd be an Admiral and you know why? Well, in the early days, I thought God just had me here for a little while, preparing me and growing me so I could go out and, and uh, get planted in a place where he had me to serve that was really what it was all about. Not, not this Navy thing. <laughs> so, um, But in the process, having the courage to take on things that really need to be done, and it started early in life for me, uh, uh, in my career. You know the troops came up one day and said, "Hey, we need to you." So you, I, I was served on a World War II destroyer, and it had an old steam-powered plant in it. And I was ended up being the chief engineer, which is a whole other story. We don't have time to do that, but it was a fabulous job for a guy with my, with my time in. And I got that opportunity because the captain right away noticed that you know when I told him something, it was going to be right. Now you know what I think that means, Aaron. I, I mean, this is where. I believe that uh, uh, people of faith have such an advantage in the marketplace. The Bible teaches us that our yes is supposed to mean yes, and our no is supposed to mean no. And when that is, in fact, true, our bosses will back us when they see that we're we're in a tough spot. And, you know, should I believe this guy or not? And they're not going to believe you on the first pass. You know, that's fantasy land. Uh, all of that happens because uh, we prove, you know, the good book says, uh, well done now, good and faithful servant. Uh, that's the way this uh, this all really works. Well, now what happens is the first time you take on a really tough one and you navigate your way through that, it gives you tremendous confidence to take on the next tough one. And pretty soon you're taking them on, you know, with the United States Congress and they're saying, well, Admiral, I'm not sure we're going to do that. And you say, and you have the right uh, response. And you, you decide and and you decide if you're going to uh, give them pablum or you're going to shock them <laughs> into reality. And I found that there were times when that was necessary. But it always had to be done very smoothly. I was not recommended for a job after retiring from the Navy. I won't name it. But. Um, the White House came after me to go fill a job. I said, why are, you, why are you asking me to do this? And they said, well, it is said about you that you uh, masterfully navigate your way through uh, groups that have a lot of disparate entities in them and that you're able to bring them together. You don't do that by sprinkling huh? uh, sugar on the cereal in the morning. You know, uh, it takes a lot of work, but you, it it the the enablement comes from when people grow to trust you now let me make one leadership statement my favorite leadership book is titled the truth about leadership and the thing that i love about it most is that it starts with something that uh, really should mean something to christians and truth number 1 is you know you got to you make a difference and that's hum. we would we know that right truth number 2 and this is written by some uh uh researchers uh at the university level who've been doing this for now forty years.
1: Vern, who, who published who published the book? So these guys might get it if they want to. Do you know?
2: Uh yeah, but
1: uh I was just looking to see if I had it
2: right. Well, you right. can
0: you can get uh, it to me later yeah, and we'll we'll uh, get sir,
2: it. Yeah P O S N E R is one of the authors and COZES, K-O-U-Z-E-S. And truth okay. about leadership and you put it in like that and it flashes you right to Amazon. All right. Truth number two, credibility is the foundation of leadership. And this is back to being a Christian and yes means yes and no means no. And your word is your bond. Uh, So, you know, all of those are intertwined. Uh, Is that responsive, Aaron?
0: That's excellent. That's excellent. Admiral Clark, you talked about, um, going back just a little bit, the lessons you learned with the USS Cole, um, that incident carried over to communication when you, in 9-11. Mm-hmm. How, what have you put into place in your life and leadership so that you're able to take those lessons and not waste them so that when you're faced with the next challenge, the next crisis, you're able to build on those? Because I think sometimes we, we don't do that and um, we can learn from you today.
2: I guarantee you, we don't do that. And you know how I know so well? We had
0: a whole we had a
2: whole program in the Navy called the Lessons Learned Program. And after certain evolutions, you had to do one. You had a major operation, you have to submit a Lessons learned. You blah blah blah. But the reality is, nobody ever went back and read them. So you know, if you got you got to change behavior to really become a winning organization. Uh, so let me give you an example. First of all. I'm commanding my first ship. I'm a lieutenant. You don't, I'm um, five and a half years in the Navy. Usually you don't get command till 16 to 18 years. This was an anomaly. But again, it was this thing about, you know, I wasn't gonna be here very long, but the Lord was pulling strings and things happened. So I got to command early. And then I, by the time I should be going command the way the normal command is, I'm going to my third command. But every step of the way, after every evolution that had significant risk attached to it in any way, uh, like coming into a harbor and mooring the ship. When that evolution was over, they all met uh, in the wardroom, which is where the officers d- eat dinner and stuff. Uh, there's room to collect. And the head guy on the forecastle so that's the line handling organization on the front of the ship, the head one on the rear of the ship, the guy running the bridge that day, the quartermaster that was running the bridge um, and the, the uh, officer in charge in the combat information spaces, that's where all the technology is and the radars and everything. All of those people muster front center with us, commanding officer, that would be me. Okay, what did we learn today? And this, by the way, the first time you do this, they go, oh, goodness, where is this going? And so, you know what I found out right away? I, and I say, you know, I did a couple things today that already looking back on it, I could have done a lot better. Let me tell you what they were. And open the door for this discussion, okay, all the way to being a four-star admiral running the Navy, and we're going to country X, uh, and we're going to have what would be at the Navy level the equivalent of a state visit. I'm going to visit their commander of their Navy, or vice versa. They would come and visit me, and it was always official. It wasn't a playtime. Um, and on the, as soon as we got in the airplane leaving, they knew what was going to happen. Okay. Um, uh, stand by, you got your notes ready. And they come into, um, where I was on the airplane and we'd all kind of collect, it's kind of awkward, but you know, collect and say, okay, what did we learn this time? Let's go over the whole agenda that we had now. So what I'm really, and, and the first one, just like when I was a Lieutenant, the very same thing. I said, well, anything, any, and not frankly, I was doing this just to reinforce that this is the way people still are going to react. Uh, this is having an, an appreciation. Uh, my biggest lesson learned as I got more senior in life is to appreciate the human response. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you can either despise it or love it. But I decided despising it didn't get you very far. You better start appreciating it and understanding that that's part of the lesson. Um, and uh, so I ask, does anybody see anything that we really needed to do better? Boy, not a peep. And so I said, well, I have a couple. So let me give you mine. <laughs> boy, up the door, the you know, it opens the floodgates, and now everybody has something to say. But then the next time you meet, you say, now remember what John told us last time we met. Did we do any better today, this time, on this visit? Uh, and so the people, it's about to elevating and enabling people and i had that with admiral train when he so encouraged me uh that gave me confidence that he was a two-star admiral but i was a lieutenant he, he's so he's 0 08 there's 10 steps officer one through 10 and i'm an 03 and he's an 08 and he asked me a question and i i gave him an honest re- uh, answer that i thought You're probably not going to like this because it was about his presentation he had just given. And how'd that go? And I said, oh, Admiral, it went great, which is the way it always was. He was terrific. And this particular time I said, but, you know, there is a place, one place that could be better. And I mean, we were walking back to the office and he literally stopped right in the middle of the passageway and turned and looked at me and said, what, where? (laughs) I mean, he wanted to know. Uh, but I mean, it, that you know, that whole action would free somebody to inaction. So I believe it is absolutely a discipline in life that we determine we are not going to make the same mistake again if we can avoid it. Now, one other truth—it's uh, in the uh, truth about leadership—the best learners are the best. Leaders.
1: So, Vern, when I when I hear you give this, when I hear you give this hour talk in three and a half minutes, like you just did, (laughs) and I and I listen, I listen to uh, this idea. It's it's one thing to say leaders go first when they're taking the hill, or leading the battle in the open Pacific or whatever it's another thing to say leaders go first in vulnerability that's what I heard you just say that absolutely and saying you know I I probably got a B or B plus but wow I um and that's been my experience when somebody above me has done that your point about it opens the door yeah it, it, what that shows me is first of all, how authentic you are. And, and again, you know, around the world today, if you're a younger person and you know, when you're our age, your age and my age, and I'm a bit older, everybody's younger, right? But, (laughs) but, but but if you're twenties or (laughs) thirties, what you hear over and over again is what I want from the guy in the pulpit or the guy who's the boss on my job is I want authenticity, i.e. truth telling and vulnerability. That's what I want. My experience is that's what a hundred year old guys want too: authenticity exactly. and vulnerability. And, and when you, what that shows me when you say, okay, I screwed up or I could have done better, whatever. What it shows me is how secure you are in yourself because the insecure guys about control, the secure guys about Freeing subordinates, whatever, whatever language you want to use, empowering those around you, and you—that's a beautiful way you said that. That—that just—and I've—and I've seen that. I've—I've I've been on the edges of you and your enterprise in the Pentagon, and mm-hmm. Aaron and our other listeners. You need to understand that a four-star might not be God, but they're <coughs> like. They're real close, you know. They're sort of in the next room, right? (laughs) And so, and so, when I get escorted, which after nine eleven, you always had to have an escort. When, when you, when you um, get escorted to the admiral's office, who's the head of the navy, they think you're important. I loved it because (laughs) I would (laughs) come out of Ernst's office, and and again, these guys live their lives in fifteen minute increments. They don't have Mm -hmm. time to mess around with, you know. I mean, you would never get this kind of time with Admiral Clark if he was still head of the Navy. I'll just put it that way, right? It's not because he's arrogant. It means that he's got stuff to do. And so I would get to go to lunch there, you know, so I'd be there 45 minutes or even an hour or so. That was crazy. Yeah. And I'd come out and twice I had this happen. And this, this has to do with what you model in leadership you 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 model in part by with whom you associate who are the people you give time to is sort of a mark of who you are as a leader and so twice two different years, two different majors in the marine Corps on the way back to the south parking lot Burn. they they said uh they said Mr. Foth, could we ask you a personal question Can i ask you i said sure he said um what when 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 you come and see the admiral like um what what do you talk about? Because they, I don't have a title. My only title in the Pentagon was friend. My experience with that title is it will get you into any office in the world. Yeah. Anybody, it just was, you know. And so because I was the admiral's friend, I they said, what do you talk about? Because they have a sense I'm probably not advising him on forward fighting platforms. <laughs> <laughs> I just said, well. I said to both the guys, different years, different guys, do you, do, you have any, do you have any background in scriptures? Do you understand anything about the Bible? Both of them had some. I said, you know, there are these four readings or writings about this Jesus of Nazareth person. And then this fifth one has to do when he left and they were on their own. And I said, in that fifth one where they're on their own, they got together, did four things. One is they ate together. Two is they were together. Three is they shared some thought about this Jesus. We call it the apostles' teaching. And the fourth thing, was they had a prayer. I said, so when I come and see the Admiral, that's what we do, right? We're sort of reconnecting. I'm saying, how's, how's the golf club selling on eBay, which is one of the <laughs> How's that coming? How's your game coming? And we talk about, or we talk about is Vernon Connie's boys who were in computer stuff in Phoenix and all that. And then we you know have a cup of tea or have a little meal. And and we'd have some thought from scriptures that we put on the table and we'd talk about that. And I'm not the teacher here, I'm a brother, and we're learning from each other in this process. And then we'd pray for each other. And I told them this. I said, that's what we do. We just join hands on the table and pray. And both of the guys said exactly the same thing. They said, That, sir, is awesome. Because if you're down the food chain, you want to believe that the guy at the top is not a megalomaniac who thinks he's mm. God. Mm. You want he or she to, to be responsive to somebody else. And yeah. one, of, one of Vern's great leadership <clears throat> stories for me had to do with who he invited to the table. He's talking about inviting four stars or people down the chain. And then he invites this guy named Foth who doesn't have any creds. You know, my, my military experience is one semester <laughs> ROTC at Cal Berkeley. And when I said that <laughs> to his colleagues, they just roll their eyes and say, Well, that's like a philosophy class. That's not even military. You know, that sort of thing. But but that idea, when, when Vern went around the world, when he'd get on his P3, whatever it was at that time in the early days before he got the Gulf Stream, you would take two guys with you when you went to see the fleet. Yeah. Just take take two minutes if you will, because Aaron's got other questions and I just jumped in here. But, but why don't you just take two minutes and tell us who you took and why you took them? So
2: I had one guy that I took with me everywhere. My aide would always go with me because he, was, he did things that kept me from having to major on minors so I could major on majors. Um, and so, you know, I never did logistics. By the way, when I retired from the Navy, the first thing I realized was people say, well, what do you miss the most? And at first we said, oh, of course, the people. Well, it is the people. But then, you know, they're not dependent on us, so it's not so, doesn't press you so hard. And then pretty soon it's, wow, I really missed the airplane. (laughs) (laughs) But then, you know, that wears off. I learned how to do airplanes. And then it's, wow, I so miss staff. And you know why? They made me so much more effective. Because they collected things so I could do the, you know, the crunch work in the moment. Um, so when you went to the fleet, you took somebody, who, you didn't take somebody who didn't know how to spell fleet, I promise you. Um, because I wanted to set eyes. Uh, you know, I wasn't out there to, to hold somebody's hand. I was out there to inform myself. And I want before we leave, I want to talk about one third, one third, one third, okay? Uh, Aaron filed that away. Uh, because the last one-third is evalu- what leaders do. They one-third is evaluate the product of the plan. And so uh, I picked people who could help me see what I was looking at. So many people look at it and don't see it. And if I can only be in one spot, I needed people with me that were going to be out on the fringes from where I was. And they come back and tell you, oh, no, well, this is what was really happening you were talking to the captain. Here's what was the scrambling that was going on on the backside. And I learned when I was a, a Commodore of a squadron of Destroyers that I had learned myself how to, I could walk on the bridge when the ship's getting underway and then get put my hands on one telephone where I could listen to the communication circuit among the coordination team. And in 15 minutes, I knew what I had on that ship. And so I was always out there assessing while I was also trying to uh, encourage and do all the other things that you do. But that's what I was doing.
0: Did you unpack the one-third, one-third, one-third for us?
2: Okay, so when I was a two-star, I worked for a guy who hired me because I had an MBA. And at that point in time, there weren't any MBAs in the Navy. And I got that because I thought – you know, I said – mom and dad raised me to believe in the calling of every believer. And when I submitted my life to God, I really thought I was going to go into the full-time ministry. That's what I surrendered to. But remember dad, there were 500 churches in Illinois and I saw some ministers in Illinois that were called by somebody, but it wasn't clear to me that it was God. And, <laughs> and I know religious, you know how smart teenagers are this was I was I, I was observing <laughs> and uh, so <laughs> I I was determined I was going to get my call and uh, and as I went uh you know went through, through this journey it was um always learning I was an avid reader and but my reading list was way different from the Naval Academy guys reading list I mean I read Uh, things about growing people. And all your missionaries are in the business of growing people. And if there was one of the strengths that I had is that I was good at that. But one of the reasons is I committed a lot of my personal endeavor figuring out how to do that. Well, so I get to this job and my MBA in large part had been parked on the bench but I would when I was in command, I would uh, use certain things. I understood finance better than most of my peer group. Um, I understood uh, human capital, I thought better than them. In fact, I had become kind of a training wizard in the process of learning how people learn, and also understanding that people will learn and remember five to 10 percent of what they hear, 10 uh, to 15 percent of what they see, 30 percent of what they read. of what they hear, see, and read, and, you know, all the way to 90% of what they hear, see, see, and read and actually do. Well, you know, this was an important part of my development. So my boss, when I go to the fleet, not as this commander in chief, but this time I'm the deputy commander uh, That's a two-star. He says, Vern, I hired you because you have an MBA and you think differently. And we're going to learn how to run this place like a business. It's a little $10 billion business down here. And I want you to help me. And the first thing I want from you is I want a model the way I spend my time. And so I went out and did the First off, I still had all my notes from graduate school. There was nothing in there about that. (laughs) And so then I started searching the Internet and I started doing and, you know, doing research at the library even because the Internet wasn't up in in 1994. It's when that was. It wasn't as good as it is and by any means as it is today. But I found this model, I found three models. But the one I recommended was this one. One third of the time on the touchstones. If you're the boss, one third of the time on the touchstones. You need to spend some time talking about what the touchstones are. And so my, t- you know, if you're the head of, uh, uh, you know, pick a, com- a company, General Motors, okay. Uh, who are the touchstones? Well, the suppliers and the, and the, wor- and the uh, workforce, the banker. You know, and you keep going, and uh, and it, it's a good, healthy ten-minute discussion with a group of subordinates. Uh, one third of the time on the touchstones, but who were they for me? Who was my banker? uh, uh the Congress. You know, when I got this job, I hadn't, hadn't spent any time working with Congress. I had a lot of development I um, needed. One third of the time on the growth, development, and placement of my subordinate structure, growth. I want to say, and uh, uh, it's one of the things I really want to get across to all of your missionaries. If we're in the leadership development business, we've got to look for opportunities. And crisis is such a fabulous opportunity. Uh, Remember I said when I told my staff, don't come back asking for permission. You have it. Go take, assume your authority. Empowering a subordinate in time of crisis, you can get away with it, and other times you can't, and so I put that in the category of taking advantage of every opportunity to grow people, so whole priority two was, and and when I got to be the CNO, I hired a guy and told him to hire three to five people to, to evaluate me once a quarter on whether I was doing what I was preaching, and one-third of uh, number three was evaluate the product of the plan. And we don't do that, especially in the military. We didn't do that. You know what we did? We built a budget so we could go spend the taxpayers' money for the next year. We didn't sit down and say, well, where were we effective here? And I, this is a – laughingly, I said to my admirals when I first had my all-admiral uh, – a guy two before me had started this all-admirals conference once a year. And actually, I, I was a brand new one star, and I thought it was disgusting because the, the uh, environment inside the room was terrible. The four stars were sitting there with their nose up in the air. I used to, I said one time to a group of four stars, and three stars, I said, you know, when I was a one star, if you looked around in the room and it started raining in that room, all the four stars would have died, they would have drowned. Uh, I mean, it was pathetic, I thought. <laughs> And so, you know, it wasn't going to be that way when Vern was running the place. Uh, they had a – they didn't have – I gave them assigned seats, but there were no four-stars at their table. And they had they had a job to do while they were there. Well, evaluating the product of the plan, we don't – aren't good at set assessment, and we're least good at self-assessment. I mean, look at the condition the world's in. Do you think people are really honestly self-assessing uh, in the uh, – it, the world wouldn't look like it looks today if they were effective at doing that. So I wanted to, one third of the time on the touchstones really critical who they are and in a church organization, who are they? And you know, it's the financial side and, but it's also the the people inside the, uh, the, the church organization that are really effective leaders and can grow others. And you know, doing all of the pieces, and then if you have a staff at all, figuring out how to create Admiral Harry Train moments like Admiral Harry Train created for me, changed my life, made me believe that you
1: know I was up to this.
0: One last question so, that we're, then we're going to ask you. to Go ahead, Dick.
1: No, no, no. First, third is touchstones. That is the people without whom you cannot do what you what your mission is. Exactly. They are. Next, third, grow and development, grow and develop people. Mm-hmm. Third, third was what again? Evaluate the product of the plan. Assessment. Okay. Religiously,
2: and so once a quarter, I hired Frank Pandolf to do this, and he was a Fletcher PhD, Naval Academy graduate, brilliant, genius guy. And uh, I didn't know him before I hired him, but I knew about him. I'd heard of him, and I checked him out, and I. Uh, called him and asked him to come and do this job didn't exist
0: yeah. but i
2: knew that i had 2500 people on my navy headquarters staff they weren't going to give me the empowerment i needed to be able to go do the job i had the way i wanted to do it i needed somebody that was going to keep me on course not let the tyranny of the urgent derail me um, not going to let a uss Cole event derail me um, and then you know. Head down this course with a whole set of uh, things that might accomplish the top five. And uh, so, once a quarter, it was showtime. Okay. I went to his office. He didn't come to mine because, you know, we wouldn't get anything done in my office. I went to his office and he said, Okay, Admiral, here's how you did. You were 52% here and you were 14%, (laughs) you know, and we kept working on it and I got better at it. Imagine that. Because we
0: put a spotlight on it, I got better at it. Yeah. During this time of crisis where you talked about our lack of ability to self-assess. And during this time of crisis, it is an opportunity for us to self-assess as we're going through those, these challenging times. What words of wisdom you, would you have for us as we, what we can do to be better at self-assessing ourselves during this time of crisis?
2: Well, it's really hard to do if you don't have a pretty good roadmap of what you're trying to do. Uh, Which is why I created my top five. Um, And that top five revolutionized the Navy. I mean, um, I said we were going to win the battle for people in a Navy that in my 32-year career at the time I started in the job, had never made its retention goals ever except one year when the all volunteer force started. President Reagan gave us a seventeen percent pay raise, and amazingly, we made our goal. But the very next year, we were right back down in the ditch, and I mean, it was it was pathetic. And the reason it happened was because leaders like me didn't really act like that we meant what we were saying, and so. I hired this that set up this organization to do this to keep me accountable. Now, you know, we all have uh, accountability brothers or sisters and, you know, there are ways to do this. It's really critical that the word mentor has gone through cycles where it was in approval and when it's in disapproval. I've always been less in the approval mode than the disapproval mode. I, I always, it was hard for me to believe that was always the answer to the problem. Let me say it like that. Because there are too many people who don't know how to mentor. I mean, Foth was mentoring me all along. He We didn't tell you about the time when I told him, when he came in to pray, I always said, Vern, what do we have to pray about? And the first thing out of my mouth was pray for wisdom. Because why? That's what the good book says, right? You got to be an idiot not to follow it. <laughs> Uh, if you're a person of faith. Um, but then, I don't know, we hit a time after, first of all, my boss was Secretary of Defense with Bill Cohen and then Bush got elected and Don Rumsfeld came in. And I told him one day, I said, you know, Dick, I don't know if I'm going to make it here. And he looked, I mean, he almost turned pale. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never asked him what he thought he heard Megan with, But, Dick said, okay, we're going to pray about that. And I want to tell you, uh, the turnaround, by the time I left and within uh, probably eight to, six to nine months of us starting to pray about it, there wasn't any question in anybody's mind that I had a fabulous relationship with Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld, who was a very difficult guy and was prickly and could be, uh, could be very difficult to work with. And in my case, not work with, but work for yeah. <laughs> a slight difference there. Yeah. Uh, so um, I believe that the whole accountability thing is really what it's all about.
0: Yeah. What were the, before you pray for us, what were the five things you told you had five things? And I know the listeners are going to know if I don't ask the question, they're going to, I'm going to be getting emails. Okay.
2: Number one was to win the battle for people. At first it was the war for people. And after 9-11, it was the battle for I couldn't say that was the war. Um, and I didn't tell you, uh, so I started down the line. But we never made those retention goals. And the retention goal was always 38%. And there was some confusion with the statistics, and I don't need to spend the time to untangle it. But I restructured the way – so we didn't have a spotlight at all on attrition. So we were losing 39% of our sailors in their first term. and They didn't complete their tour of duty, which I thought was absolutely obscene. And uh, I just told the, my admirals the first time, I said, I'm not going to be the CNO, Chief of Naval Operations, CNO of a Navy like this. I'm not. And so here's what we're going to do. And I introduced them to covenant leadership, the promises. And they promised to support and defend the Constitution. I'm going to ask every leader in the Navy, what do you promise in return? And I going to guarantee you, I'm going to be looking at the product of the plan. And we are going to cut attrition. It is absolutely irresponsible to take a young man or woman and they put on the uniform, take this oath, and we get in a a peak someday and say, I don't like that person. And we throw them on a trash pile of failure. And if you believe like I do, nothing succeeds like success and nothing fails like failure. That is not gonna happen around here anymore. And this year we're gonna cut attrition by 25%. And next year we're gonna cut it by 25%.
0: <laughs>
2: and <laughs> so I changed the re- retention goal for first term sailors from 38%, which we never made. It was 19% when I took over the Navy. And the first year stretch goal was 37%, was adjusted some because of those attritions, and uh, pulled them out separate. I didn't. Uh, the attrition counted against retention, and there were. If, if we threw somebody out because they were absolutely maladjusted, that's not a commander's responsibility for failing to keep them in. We need to give him a gold star for getting the scumbag, you know, out of our organization. They're soiling us, and so um, I'm a little blunt, but probably please don't print. Maybe you ought to edit
1: that out. <laughs> that's
0: good. It's transparent <laughs> conversation.
1: you <laughs> that in. He's he's keeping that in. (laughs) So get this. The first
2: year, 57% stretch goal. We didn't make it. We only made 56.7%. It was unbelievable. Within three years, we had so many people wanting to stay in the Navy. We broke all the records the very first year. And this was just by starting this discussion about valuing people and making promises,
1: real promises to people. About so does, what? So 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 does all that come under point one, your first goal?
2: uh yeah, that's all point one. Point two is I'm sorry, thank you for moving me. <laughs> point two is current readiness, and that was a big issue because current readiness, uh, uh, pry three was future readiness. That's building the ships and airplanes and submarines of the future. And uh, I had a transition team, and we we uh, went after it on all of these subjects, and. The very first thing out of their mouth was, Admiral, you cannot make future readiness lower than current readiness. Your job as the CNO is future readiness. And I said, look, I don't have enough money to uh, uh, renew the, na- the Navy in four-year term as a CNO, but I do have time to do something about, uh, doing something about the current readiness. And I told the Secretary of Defense that it was in the toilet and that we were going hollow. And he almost passed out when he heard me say that was in the interview. Um, and remember, I told you, I knew I wasn't going to get the job, but I wanted to make sure he knew what questions to ask the other people. And so what happened is um, we put current readiness at the top of the list. And over the course of the next two and a half, three years, we when the Bush administration came in, they gave me a billion eight right off. And I put it all in readiness. I reprogrammed nine billion dollars in the existing budget. And by the, we improved readiness by six or 700% over the course of those three years. It was unbelievable what you can do when you really focus on it. Number four was alignment. And I was so impacted by the book by George Labovitz called The Power of Alignment. It's an old book now, but it's all true. I promise you, missionaries, if you got more than two people in your organization, which means if you're married... You've got two people in that organization, <laughs> you have alignment issues. <laughs> and the, every person you add, you add to the difficulty of the alignment problem. And I'm not talking about a bar chart, and I am talking about that. I mean, you got to fix that. And then and I've made major changes to the structure. But the real alignment is communication alignment, message alignment. Are people really number one? Does, do I act like they're number one every day? And the fourth one is quality of service and that's quality of life plus quality. That's awesome.
0: Admiral Clark, could you pray for our audience, pray for the missionaries and the the listeners who are listening today?
2: You bet. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that we serve a living God in time of crisis. Like we're in today, we saw crises like this in your word. And we know that you're still the master of the universe and we know that you're a sovereign God and we know that you allow some things to happen and some things not to happen. I would never question that and that's not why we approach the throne of grace, but we approach the throne of grace saying you're a great God. You spoke the world into place and cast the stars and the planets into place. And just blinked, and that big ocean was there that I steamed around on most of my life. I'm so thankful to you that we can come before the throne of grace. And I just lift up the audience that's out here today, the missionaries that are out there facing incredible challenges. I'm so thankful, Lord, in my perspective, you gave me a chance to understand what it's like to live overseas and in a distant place and the challenges that that all. Uh, Brings about. But I also claim the promises of the Father uh, that you are the provider, you are the enabler, you're our baptizer, our healing, our coming King. You have nothing but good that you want for us if we are able uh, to commit ourselves to the principles that you're teaching us in the Word. And I just pray, Lord, that you would empower missionaries around the world as they're as they are telling the story of Jesus and Lord it's not lost on us that this is an amazing time where people are going to tune into things faith at times that they would never even think about considering listening to the story of Jesus and we just pray that you would uh so enable equip and enable these Uh, missionary organizations globally, that we would see an unprecedented kind of revival as people are drawn to you. Thank you for the leadership here that Aaron and his group that are uh, sharing this uh, globally and worldwide today. And we commit to follow and try to live out the example of what Jesus' life was all about. And my prayer would be that we would, people would be able to see the beauty of Jesus in us as they walk their path and their journey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.
0: Amen. Amen. Amen.